The Deal of the Week podcast is brought to you by ExxonMobil. Energy lives here. Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. This week, we're joined by Robert Townsend, Morrison and Forster's co-chair of Global M&A, who's been deep in the boardroom since uh, the 1980s, similar to our last guest, Frank Aquila from Sullivan and Cromwell. Rob belongs to the law firm lovingly known as MoFo and has done deals for some of the biggest names in technology and telecom, including Intel and SoftBank, which owns the majority of Sprint. He'll talk to us about a survey his firm recently conducted about where technology M&A could be heading in 2016 and his time as an international lawyer, where he's got some very interesting stories from his time doing deals in Japan. But first, let's get into a weekly segment we call What's the Big Deal, where we hit on the week's most interesting M&A news. And joining us from London is Bloomberg's M&A reporter Manu Baigori, who helped break a story this week exclusively on Bloomberg on a potential merger between two European telecom companies. I'll, I'll test my French accent here. Orange, a French wireless carrier, uh, and Telecom Italia, or at least uh, the possibility of doing a deal down the road with Telecom Italia. This would be, if it happened, a $25 billion deal plus. So, Manu, welcome to Deal of the Week. Hey, Alex. Thank you, and uh, great uh, to be part of your podcast. First, um, let's hit on the main headlines of this deal, and then we can sort of do a primer on European telecommunications, because, frankly, I think most Americans have no idea what companies even are in the European telco world. So for this particular deal, what we've reported is that Orange, is that is that right? Is my French pronunciation yes, correct no, on that? Yes, that's, that's perfect. Okay, good. Is, is working with advisors to explore a variety of different options in Europe. Is that correct? Yes, Alex. Yeah, as you will explain, I mean, the uh, landscape of telecoms in Europe, it's uh, quite different to that in the U.S., right? I mean, whereas in the U.S., we have very few players. In, in Europe, there is still a wide range of companies that are local or a little bit cross-border within Europe, pan-European operators. But the opportunities for consolidation are just huge. And um, we've seen so far in the last few years, tons of deals in um, you know telecoms here in Europe, but most of them uh, were in market. And uh, what people now are expecting is that at some point down the road, the bigger players will start um, buying uh, companies, smaller operators in, in other countries. So uh, the time for cross-border pan-European deals is getting closer and closer. And uh, within that landscape, Orange uh, is uh, a clear buyer, right? I mean, uh, the French telco operator, which has the uh, French government as its biggest shareholder, is a clear buyer. They've said on the record many times that they would like to participate in that consolidation uh, whenever it takes place. And uh, Telecom Italia, which is another telco operator, uh, the the biggest one in Italy is one that could make some sense for them to create a bigger pan-European and uh, operator with a big presence in Southern Europe. So you mentioned it. We've seen a lot of merger activity from these companies, certainly even from an American standpoint. Some of the names may be familiar. 
I know Liberty Global, which is owned by American billionaire John Malone, or at least controlled by John Malone, he owns a, a decent portion of the company, has bought a lot of cable operators, including Virgin Media, which is a name I'm sure most Americans are familiar with, even though it's a UK company. And I know also we've reported extensively on Liberty Global, who's basically been talking all year up until very recently about doing a potential merger with Vodafone. Who are some of the other major players in European telecommunications? Well, two other uh, companies are uh, well-known here in, in Europe across the pond are Telefonica of Spain, uh, which is a really big telecoms operator uh, ranging from Spain, uh, Germany, and also Latin America. And then we have Deutsche Telekom, for instance. It's another big name, big player that will be very active in consolidation down the road. So Deutsche Telekom owns two-thirds of T-Mobile, so yet another company that uh, Americans may be familiar with. Can you help us understand a little bit what is the main strategy here? In other words, what we've seen in the United States is these cable companies that are buying other cable companies to get bigger so that media companies like the Disneys and the Time Warners of the world don't have as much leverage pushing programming cost increases on them, which the cable companies then have to turn around and, of course, pass along to consumers who then cancel their cable service because the price has gotten too big. So they've tried to get bigger to get more leverage. And what we might see as the next step of that, although we haven't seen it in the United States, is mobile companies like Sprint and Timo potentially coming together with some of these now larger cable companies. Now, Europe, you can, of course, buy across borders. So is the strategy to try to get bigger in different countries, or is it to put mobile with cable like or is there some other strategy exactly that's a really good question alex is it really uh, making big acquisitions and cross-border acquisitions in the telco in the telecommunications space really a good thing uh i think that remains to be seen uh because the synergies to be achieved are a big question mark and uh, if you take a step back and look at companies like telefonica for instance during the 90s and early 2000s they were, you know, they went on an acquisition spree and they bought many businesses from Latin America and also here in Europe. And then they were caught in the middle of the big financial crisis uh, where revenues completely plunged and they started to uh, sell assets because they were too leveraged uh, after all those acquisitions, right? So um, that is a pattern that we've seen across Europe. And that's been one of the main drivers for consolidation. It's just like companies growing and expanding overseas. And I mentioned Telefonica, but the same goes for Deutsche Telekom, for Telecom Italia, for Orange. And uh, they expanded tremendously to try to gain scale. And, um, you know, they found themselves uh, years later that the leverage ratio, they were too indebted. So they had to start selling assets because some of the synergies that they thought they could achieve, uh, you know, weren't there. Here in Europe, the main problem has been, or one of the main problems has been that during the um, financial crisis, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, economies like Italy and Spain have been a great example, uh, have been completely battered and, you know, uh, consumption levels have dropped dramatically. So uh, that, you know, has had a tremendous impact on profitability in telecom operations. 
they are just trying to package all kinds of services uh, from broadband to mobile to um, you know pay TV uh, in order to offer the customer a more competitive service. It's a similar uh, similar thing to what we're seeing in the United States, really. I mean, I think that's sort of the next frontier in the United States is to try to put all these things together and see, okay, does this offer uh, a chance to get more customers? Do you think this deal gets done between Orange and Telecom Italia? The main question mark uh, here is, are the governments of France and Italy on board? This is a very highly political deal. And, uh, you know, as long as the governments don't agree on what the strategy is going forward, what the shareholders' structure will be, I don't think we'll see a deal. Thanks, Manu, for a good primer on the world of European telecommunications. For more on international telecom and technology, we head to an interview done a few days ago with Rob Townsend at Morrison and Forrester. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsor. You're listening to the Deal of the Week podcast, brought to you by ExxonMobil. Energy lives here. Rob Townsend, co-chair of Morrison and Forrester's M&A practice, joins us now from San Francisco. He was named Global M&A Lawyer of the Year in 2014 by the Major Markets M&A Atlas Awards uh, and has advised several large companies recently in big deals. He advised SoftBank in its 78% acquisition of Sprint in 2013, and this year he was an advisor on Avago's $37 billion deal for chipmaker Broadcom, representing Broadcom's co-founder, who held about 25% of Broadcom's voting shares. That was the largest tech deal of all time until Dell's acquisition of EMC just last month. Rob, thanks for joining us. Alex, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for asking me to uh, to join the podcast today. So before we get into your career and uh, some interesting lessons you've learned and trends you're seeing, I want to start with a survey released by your firm, MoFo, and 451 Research. It's a survey that comes out every six months on specifically technology Deal making, Rob. Who is first? Before we get into the results, who is surveyed for this exactly? Alex, we go out to the market twice a year to conduct this survey. Once in the spring, once in the fall. The most recent was in October of this year, and our survey reaches out to a national audience of deal professionals and companies, CEOs, CFOs, and heads of business development, investment bankers, accountants, and lawyers, people who are regularly doing M&A transactions in the technology sector. So this is a group of people that has a little bit of insight into a survey because, at least theoretically, they're seeing their pipeline. One thing I noticed was that almost 25% of all respondents predict a decline in tech M&A activity, up from just 9% six months ago. So is this a sign we may have reached a peak in M&A volume, at least in technology? Well, it is a question on the top of a lot of people's minds, understandably, Alex, because obviously this year has been off the charts. We've seen a half trillion dollars of transactions, M&A transactions in the tech, media, and telecom sector. As you mentioned earlier, we've seen the two largest deals in the technology sector in history, in the Avago Broadcom and Dell EMC deals. Uh, So a lot of people are asking what's next. And our survey revealed, as you'd suggested, that 24% of the survey respondents thought we are now due for a decline. 
Having said that, 76% at the same time said it will stay the same or increase. So to some extent, this is really in the eyes of the beholder. But we also asked the question in a different way. We asked our audience, uh, where do you see the deal market in terms of normal cycles? And 51% of the respondents said we're in the middle of the cycle. 41% said we're at or near the end. And then we had a very brave and bold 9% who said this is just the beginning. Right. Either really stupidly optimistic or brave and bold, depending (laughs) on your perspective. So is technology a proxy for M&A more broadly, or is it not really fair to draw that parallel? Well, I guess I would look at it in a slightly different way. I would say that the technology sector today and M&A in the sector is driven to some extent by larger trends uh, that affect the macroeconomic economy and also driven by, by unique technology trends, by which I mean many sectors of the economy are having to respond to technological developments that are impacting their industry, and that is driving deals in some sectors. Uh, but technology has a number of unique factors that drive deal making in in the technology sector. But certainly, this year there has been a correlation across industries. By which I mean, it's not just a record year in technology, as you know, it's a record year in M and A more broadly as well. Let's get into your career a little bit. I know you've done a lot of international M and A work through the years, and I wanted to ask you about how culture comes into play in M&A. How does doing a deal in Japan differ from Germany, which differs from the U.S.? You know, as I look at it, these are kind of battle scars of, of international experience. As you mentioned, I started my career doing international deals in the 80s. I lived in Japan in the early 90s. And while much has changed, much stays the same. Um, I never forget the experiences in doing deals in the early 90s in Japan, where you'd get into a conference room with no windows for a day. You'd notice in the beginning that everybody was, was smoking in the room, but you're focused on the deal. You're focused on paying attention to what your client the other side is saying. And by the by the end of the day, you've forgotten that you were in a smoke-filled room until you walk out of that room and you notice you reek of, of cigarette smoke. And, and that's not the only challenge my lungs confronted during the days in Japan. I don't think I've mentioned this to you before, but I was also a victim of a terrorist attack there. I was on the subway train that Aum Shinrikyu put sarin gas on back in, uh, back in 1995. So there are a number of challenges in, in doing deals um, on a cross-border basis. You had mentioned Germany as well, and the, and the negotiating tactics differ there from here. I'll never forget um, representing a very large U.S. technology company in a multi-billion dollar deal in Germany, and our client was focused on confidentiality and and negotiating the deal under um, secrecy. And we'd spend all day in a conference room, and then we would get up the next morning and read about our negotiations in the in the newspaper every day. And the, the interesting thing was the price reported on in the newspaper was always at least uh, 5% or 10% higher than the price we'd negotiated the day before in the, in the conference room. So we felt like that was being steered in a certain direction. Nice. I like that strategy. Is that something that's steeped in the German culture? Or is, I mean, is, is that like a common occurrence for, for German deals? I'd say the approach is certainly different in Germany. I think this particular counterparty was more inclined to use the press, and I think in that circumstance it was because 
they wanted us to believe there was an auction, and we were not taking that seriously enough in their minds, so they wanted to put some public pressure on us as an alternative source of trying to get us to to raise our price and change our terms. So one of the relationships you have maintained and and had for a little bit of time now uh, is one with SoftBank, the Japanese-based wireless and technology company. Uh, And it's run by a billionaire named Masayoshi Son, who has a 300-year plan for SoftBank. What can you tell us about Masa and what it's like working with him? Uh, Masa is unique among all people I've I've done deals with over the years, um, and a lot of people say he is as much like Steve Jobs or the Steve Jobs of Japan, by which they mean that not only is he a brilliant corporate strategist and CEO, but he also is someone who does not hesitate to personally dig into the details of whatever technological or other um, problems the company is confronting and personally uh, invest his time, energy, and considerable intelligence in helping to to uh, wrestle with and solve those problems. So he's demonstrated his ability to do that and, like Steve Jobs, to reinvent his company several times over the years, having gone from being a leading Internet media company to a leading investor to a leading global telecom company. And it's... Uh, it's a pleasure to work with him. He's also amazingly decisive when it comes to deal-making. is uh, not afraid of taking multi-billion-dollar risks and making rapid decisions based on his intimate knowledge of the businesses he's in and his confidence in his own uh, decision-making ability. So, look, one of those risks that he took was a deal that you were involved in. I mentioned it earlier, taking a very large stake in Sprint, majority stake. And that acquisition, to this point, has not really panned out for him. Uh, and I'm curious, as being sort of a part of that deal, did this, from what we've seen since the deal was announced, have things sort of gone in a way that you feel like surprised Masa? Well, it's no secret that Masa invested with a vision for changing the U.S. telecommunications market, and in particular, changing the competitive dynamics. There are uh, two dominant companies in the market in Verizon and AT&T, and then there are two um, two competitors, substantially smaller, in, in T-Mobile and Sprint. And Moss's vision for this market uh, had been and continues to be that it would be a much stronger competitive dynamic that would return benefits to, to telecom customers if you could combine T-Mobile and Sprint and um, and gain the benefits of uh, scale that that would bring in terms of more money available for investing in um, in developing networks and more money available for uh, providing better services to customers. But unfortunately, the regulatory authorities in the United States uh, have taken a different point of view so far, so that that is not moving forward. And Masa is taking a step back now to look at strengthening Sprint on a standalone basis, positioned it as a as a very effective competitor, and to take what is a very large amount of spectrum that Sprint possesses and develop that in an unconventional way to deliver a stronger and better network than anyone else uh, offers in the United States. And I know certainly from my standpoint as an M&A reporter, I look to 2017 to see if there is a new presidential administration in charge, if we will see another run at combining Sprint and T-Mobile with a different FCC in charge. Uh, So that, I know, is another interesting wrinkle 
on this one. Certainly, the company's, particularly Sprint, has been fairly straightforward and public about their interest, as you mentioned, to combine those two companies. What else stands out to you in your career, some of the most interesting deals you've been a part of? Well, um, you know, the most interesting in terms of just negotiating tactics and history took place some time ago, but it was uh, was one of those stories that kind of comes to mind now with all that's going on in Asia and Russia and what have you, which is we're negotiating a very large global consortium deal with a Central Asian country, Turkmenistan. And we had spent a year, Alex, putting together the terms, and this was a consortium of companies from the United States, Japan, Saudi Arabia, Korea, and Taiwan. And it was a plan to unlock the vast natural gas resources in Turkmenistan. And we'd negotiated this carefully. We uh, we had what we thought was a deal in hand. We flew to Ashgabat, the capital of Turkmenistan, arrived there in the middle of the night, um, expecting to have a signing ceremony at the president's office the next day. And we were met at the airport by the uh, Turkmen representatives who had a, a set of, uh, of names on them. And as people got off the airplane, they sent the, um, the executives who were to sign the agreements the next day to a hotel room for them to sleep. And they took the deal makers, the lawyers and others, and said, we'd like to just meet for a few more hours here at the airport uh, to finalize a couple details, and of course they used that opportunity to try to renegotiate the basic points of the deal that we had said for years were not acceptable. And and people said at the time it's a very Soviet negotiating technique that they have learned to try and pressure people at the last minute. We stood fast. We said, you know, a deal's a deal. We can't change it now. Um, the response was, if you don't agree to change your deal, we're going to present our contract to your executives when they arrive in the president's office tomorrow, and uh, either they will sign our deal or you all be thrown out of the country. And we said, so be it. Um, We went back. We advised our clients. We told them what might happen. We walked with them to the president's palace for the signing ceremony the next day, and and the dealmakers were again excluded from the meeting. So we watched on TV as our clients uh, met with the president and signed a deal, not certain which one it was. And when they got back, they told us that they had signed our version of the agreement. I think it wasn't until an hour later that I received a phone call from the negotiator for the government who said it was time to start renegotiating the deal again. <laughs> so, you know, I had some Russian movers recently that used the same tactic on me of holding out until the end and then trying to renegotiate the terms. So maybe you're right. Maybe that is a cultural deal technique um, among uh, at least ex-Soviets. Rob Townsend, uh, Morrison Forster, co-head of their M&A practice. Uh, Interesting stuff from this technology survey and details of your career. Rob, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Alex. So that's it for episode number three of Deal of the Week. You can expect more Bloomberg reporters and M&A professionals who are doing deals real-time and who can reflect on their decades of experience as we continue with the podcast. Until then, find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Google Play, or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. And take a minute to rate and review the show while you're there. Also, follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Deal of the Week podcast, brought to you by ExxonMobil. Energy lives here.